I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And if you have been with us for the last several months, you will know that that is a change in that we have been preaching on Sunday mornings through the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And I'm not departing from that. I plan to get back. But for uh, several weeks now, I've had a burden on my heart. And it's not a new burden. It's, it's always there. But um, just recently aware of uh, some conversations with uh, pastors and watching um, presentations of, of, of supposedly the gospel um, and listening and then reading some very popular books by some academics that um, too many evangelicals are rather enamored with in these days. And so my heart is um, fired up, burdened to help you understand the biblical gospel. And I hope we're always doing that, but there's a reality that we can use the word gospel, which means good news. We can sing about the truths we just sang, and because of the present time we're in, we can, we can just miss. We can miss it. We, we, can, we can miss the true significance of the gospel, and I'm not suggesting that it's some secret you watch today. I'm not going to introduce to you anything that's brilliant or new. If I am, then you should hit the doors and flee. I want to talk to you this morning about the context of the good news, which is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And I've entitled this message, Ashamed of the Righteousness of God. Not because we're ashamed. I trust we're not. But because that is what's going on in evangelical churches today, we have become, little by little, we've come to the point where we are practically, effectively ashamed of the righteousness of God, which is to say we are ashamed of the God of the Bible. So I want to begin, you've turned to Romans chapter 1. Let me me go no farther and and let me ask God's help. Let me pray. God, you know um, my heart is to be clear this morning, but even with all the clarity, the sincerity that I could muster, At the end of the day, it is you, the living God, by your spirit, who gave the Bible and gave the gospel. It's you who can bring your gospel with power. It's you who can open up minds that have become closed. It's you that can soften hard hearts. It's you that can clear, clarify what has become confused. It is you who can plant gospel truths deeply in the hearts of your beloved people so that we are equipped to identify false gospels when they come. So look upon our hearts this morning. I I pray, God, with every fiber of my being that you would be pleased to preach your gospel today through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus, your son's name, amen. 
Psalm 145 declares, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his deeds. And that includes, of course, of all things, his deed, his ways of saving men and women. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, including salvation, including the gospel. Gospel, you hear that word, it means simply good news. Simply and wonderfully good news. And you are likely aware that there are four books of the Bible in the New Testament that have the word gospel in them. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Luke, Mark, and John. And they are accounts of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So in some sense, in that way, there are four Gospels, but there is one Gospel, and they all testify to that one Gospel, that one good news, and it is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and coming again. The one true Gospel was foreshadowed and prophesied in the Old Testament It's not new with the New Testament. It is proclaimed, it was proclaimed, established, secured, and the gospel was even enthroned when God raised his son to his right hand. This one true gospel was preached authoritatively by Jesus' disciples and his apostles. The gospel is written. It is clarified, defended, and celebrated in the scriptures, and particularly in the New Testament scriptures. And in every generation, every generation, this one true gospel is always under attack. For if Satan the deceiver can introduce false gospels or confuse the one true gospel, he can keep men and women in spiritual darkness and even rob Christ's people of their privilege and treasure, which is the gospel. The gospel is always under attack. There hasn't been a season in, in the history of redemption when this, this gospel message hasn't been assaulted by Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness. But there are seasons of greater or lesser intensity in the battle for the gospel. And right now, the battle is desperate. I know you hear public speakers and pastors, and and maybe they can be given to hyperbole. And in order to get a hearing, they sometimes overstate things. I don't believe I'm overstating it. Let me say this. This message that I'm sharing this morning, if there is one message out of all the years that I've preached, out of the thousands of sermons that I have preached, if there is one message that I could leave with you above every other, it is this. If there is one message that by God's grace could be heard by brothers and sisters who are confused in this area in these days, it is this. It is the most needed message because the gospel is always of paramount importance in every generation. So the battle for the gospel is desperate at this present time among us, right under our noses, 
And, and I'm going to suggest for three particular reasons. I mean, you could add to that, but I'm just trying to give you the vantage point that I'm standing, at, looking at as a pastor. And the first is the culture that we're in, the culture that we're in in which personal feelings are understood to determine reality and truth. We live in a culture in which personal feelings are understood. People assume that your personal feelings, feelings self-determines truth. Carl Truman, in some of his books has been so helpful. He's a theologian. We've studied some of his works in Sunday school. He's helpful in this. But, but he points out that that is how you explain how in our culture at the present time, a man can say, I'm a, a real man, a biological man, can say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and, and nobody, nobody flinches. How, can, how, how is that possible? Because you live in a culture in which Objective truth, outside truth, is no longer the determining force, but self-will, self-feelings are almighty. So that's the first force. Second force that is contributing to this battle for the gospel in this present moment is, is a culmination of decades. And I'm thinking especially the past three decades, though it certainly goes back more than that. But in the last three decades in particular... The 90s, the, the 2010s, and now this decade we're in. I, I don't know what you call these, uh, these decades, maybe. I, I don't know. Anyways, uh, I haven't figured that out yet. I'm still, I was born in the 1900s. Sorry, I'm, I'm confused by the 2000s. I don't know what to do with them. But we have three decades of churches, evangelical churches I'm thinking of, churches like ours, full of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, but for decades now, the dominant trend in evangelical churches has been to downplay the righteousness, justice, anger, and wrath of God in order to win more converts. That's been the norm. That's been the standard. It's so, so the norm that if anybody in an evangelical church talks about the anger or wrath of God on a Sunday morning, everybody's like, whoa, wow, that was heavy. He brought the hellfire and brimstone today. When if you look at your Bible, it's actually not that rare. So the trend has been now culmination. You have, you have men and women who have grown up maybe even in the church who have only been experienced, have only been exposed to a view of God and the scriptures that is absent God's righteousness, justice, anger, and so on. So the culture we're in, this pattern of, for the sake of, and, and it's a, uh, for the sake of winning people to the church, hiding or diminishing or downplaying the righteousness of God. And then thirdly, and most of you, you wouldn't be aware of this, but this is part of my job, is the reality that within scholarly academic circles, there is increasingly among evangelicals uh, younger pastors, uh, a tendency to be enamored with a group of academics who are telling us through pro, uh, writings which are prolific that they're suggesting that, well, actually, we've misunderstood the gospel. We need to refashion the gospel in our day, particularly 
men such as N.T. Wright, who's a popular academic scholar considered to be an evangelical, though he is no evangelical, and Scott McKnight, who wrote a book, The King Jesus Gospel, and there are pastors and a generation who are embracing the teaching of these men, and they are men who are, through their scholarly writings, undermining and causing confusion about the true gospel. So you have cultural, you have this pattern of generally in the church, and then you add to that the seeming stature of an academic argument. And with these three forceful patterns at work, evangelical Christians and professed evangelical churches, listen carefully, they're hearing something about God. They hear about God. They sing about God in evangelical churches. They hear about Jesus. They hear about the cross. They hear brokenness, these words. They hear these words. They hear maybe even a little about sin once in a while. Uh, They hear about love. They hear terms like restoration, renewal, new life. And in all that, they are hearing no gospel. You can, I'm sorry, the true biblical gospel, of course, involves God and Jesus. The true gospel, of course, includes the cross and addresses our brokenness and sin, and of course it is is an expression of God's love. And yes, the gospel restores us, and there is renewal, and there is new life, of course, but you can talk about all those things all you want, and if you miss what the scriptures have to say about the gospel, you have not preached the gospel. Whatever you've done, If you've not spoken of the righteousness of God, you have not preached the gospel of God. That phrase, the gospel of God, is referred to eight times in the New Testament. The gospel is the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's not ours to do with what we please. It's God's gospel, no matter the culture's preferences and feelings, no matter the good intentions of the church to win more converts, and no matter the popularity of academics, it's God's gospel. And in it, in God's gospel, once for all delivered to the saints, God's righteousness, his righteousness is not hidden, it's not tucked away, it's not subverted, It is not set aside. It is not diminished or belittled. It is, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, which is where you are, it is revealed. It is revealed. Look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Romans is, in the Bible, the letter letter written that Paul wrote to the Romans is agreed upon by all pastors and theologians, biblical pastors and theologians, as the greatest presentation of the gospel in the scriptures. It's in full agreement, of course, with every other presentation of the gospel. But if you, if you want to understand something of the depths and the significance of the gospel, God's gospel, you must look and consider 
what God gave to his servant Paul in his letter to the Romans. And at the outset of this letter, Paul the Apostle says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Look with me, just skim with me for a few moments and see how prominent the righteousness of God is in Paul's presentation of the gospel. It is revealed, he says in verse 17. It is in chapter 3, verse 5, he tells us that our unrighteousness, which the gospel exposes, demonstrates the righteousness of God. Demonstrates the righteousness of God. And then down in chapter 3, verse 21, God says that now, apart from the law and the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Manifested means the righteousness of God has been revealed, it's been made known, it's been set up and made clear being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then look at verse chapter 3, verse 25. Whatever was happening at the cross, Christ was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Why? What was the purpose of it ultimately? To demonstrate, demonstrate the righteousness, his righteousness, the righteousness of God. Verse 26, Paul says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. He repeats it. The righteousness of God is the crown jewel of the gospel. The righteousness of God is the crown jewel and centerpiece of the gospel. There's more to it, of course. But the gospel is is the revealing, the manifestation, the demonstration, the exaltation, the praise of the righteousness of God. So the remainder of our time, I want to help you. I want to give you a little primer, a little instruction on God and his righteousness so that you are equipped to know and understand the true gospel. For the true gospel, the biblical gospel, has a very specific setting, a very specific context, and it is this, the righteousness of God. So bear with me as we, we, we do a little systematic biblical theology together for a few moments. God, of course, has many attributes Many glorious characteristics. God is holy, we could say. Holiness speaks of his otherness, his uniqueness. God is loving. God is faithful. God is true. God is gentle. God is kind. God is strong. God is fierce. God is all-knowing, and on and on. We, we learn these characteristics about God in his word, and we love him for these characteristics, although I'm suggesting that the modern evangelical church wants God without some of his characteristics. 
But what we need to understand is that even with his many attributes and his characteristics, in God, all of these various attributes are indivisible. They're not parts of God. You and I, in Ephesians, we are told to put off the old man and put on the new man. We put off certain behaviors and attitudes, and we put on certain attitudes and behavior. Not so with God. He doesn't put on or put off love. He is love. He doesn't put on or put off faithfulness. He is faithful. He doesn't put on or put off truth. He is true. So all of God's attributes are true of who God is. All of those attributes are are God's revealing to us from various vantage points the reality that he is. God is not the sum total of parts or these characteristics, but God is, as he revealed himself to Moses, the people. He is, I am. I am. And all these attributes are descriptors of the one who is, I am. Who is, I am, eternally so. Eternally, this one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is holy in his divinity, in the majesty of his person. His holiness refers to not merely his purity, but the reality that there is no one like this God. And certainly part of his holiness is that the divine God has nothing to hide. He has nothing to hide. He has nothing to be ashamed of. There is no aspect of his character, not one aspect of his deeds, that he is to somehow be ashamed of. There's nothing that could possibly be improved about God or his character. There is nothing about God that is unseemly or bad or embarrassing. In fact, God is all glorious He is glorious in all that he is and all that he does. There is not one single aspect of who God is that is anything other than glory. God is good. Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist says about God, Oh God, you are good. It's an absolute declaration, unqualified. God is good. It's not all that he is. But that means that all that God is, God is good. You are good and you do good. And God is righteous. As I read at the beginning this morning from Psalm 145, God is righteous in all his deeds, all his ways. He is the righteous one. His righteousness has to do with... um, You may put it this way, simply that God is right. God is right. Everything about God is right. It is just. In your Bible, our English translations of the Hebrew word Sadiq, probably not pronouncing it right, but for righteousness in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, Dikaiosune, probably not pronouncing it correctly, uh, but, but the Greek for uh, righteousness, justice. What you need to know is 
when you read righteousness or justice in your Bible, it's translating into English the same root word. God is right. God is just. Justice and righteousness are the same concept. And the Lord, according to Psalm 11, verse 7, is righteous. He defines righteousness. It's not saying there in our Bibles that there is this, there is this exterior, external characteristic of rightness or righteousness that, that God happens to fit. Rather, that God is righteous insofar as everything that is right and righteous is defined by who God is eternally so. Righteousness is defined by God, not God by righteousness. All that God is, is right. What is right and what is righteous is determined not by what we determine or anyone else, but what is right and what is righteous is determined by who God is. And his laws, what about his laws? There's, there's a lot of laws. There's a lot of commands in the Bible. Most famously, and rightly so, the Ten Commandments. And, but in addition to the Ten Commandments, there are various instructions, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What about his laws? Well, his laws, all his commands, given to man and revealed in Holy Scripture, are given so that we might know God's righteousness. Laws simply command us and instruct us how we may conform to the rightness that God is. They're not arbitrary. There is not one single law in the entirety of Scripture that is arbitrary. Some of them were temporary. In the Old Testament, there were some laws that were given for a time to Israel that were ceremonial, circumcision, for example, various dietary laws. They were given for a time to, excuse me, to distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations. And now that Christ has come, they are fulfilled. But no law that God has ever given is arbitrary. All of them, in some way, help men and women made in the image of God reflect God's righteousness, his moral purity. Excuse me. Of course, we cannot be God's image bearers in the sense that we can replicate God's power. God's all-powerful. We can't replicate God's immensity. God is everywhere in all time in the fullness of who he is. Not so with us. We're passing through time. We take up a certain amount of space. We can't be eternal. We are immortal, but we are not eternal. We, are, we cannot say that I was, I am, and I always will be. We can't replicate those aspects of the uniqueness of who God is, but we can, as God's image bearers, obey his law, his will, and keep his ways. The patterns of living that we are to live 
that communicate and reflect and magnify the righteousness of God, the rightness that God is. We can, but we haven't, have we? We haven't obeyed. We haven't obeyed God's good and perfect and reasonable law that teaches us how to live in a way that reflects the reality of who he is. We haven't. Paul will say in Romans 3.23, you know this, you can look on your Bible right there if you want. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not an oops. Sin is not a disease. Sin is not an impersonal force. Sin is willful disobedience of God's law. Let me say that again. Sin, not much talked about these days, is not a mistake. It's not an oops. It's not a psychological malady. It's not a personality brokenness. And it's not an impersonal force floating around that you can catch like the flu. Sin is our personal, willful disobedience of God's law, whether it's written on our conscience or whether it's revealed in the Bible. Sin is a man or woman, a person refusing, despising, denying, disregarding God's righteousness. Let me say that again. Sin is a man or woman refusing, despising, denying, disregarding God's righteousness. Why do I say that? Because God's law is a reflection of his righteousness. You disobey God's law, you disobey God, and you deny, and you despise, and you disregard God's righteousness, which is to say, because God is righteous, you disobey and deny God himself. Sin is personal. Sin is personal. We're not acting like that these days. We're acting like sin is like COVID or something. You catch it. And God feels bad for us and he gives us a remedy. People say, well, after all, we're only human. That doesn't excuse it. God's not going to judge animals. They haven't sinned. They're not human. They're not made in the image of God. You and I are. You and I are responsible to know God, to love God, and to obey God. So sin is personal. Sin is a little created person disobeying the good law of the one righteous God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's very personal All sin is by persons, and it is against the infinitely glorious God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sin is personal. Herman Bavink, a theologian, a Dutch theologian, whose works have been translated and published recently and very helpful, he says this. He was writing in late 1800s. Listen to this one sentence. He says, Sin is not a weakness, a lack, a temporary and gradually vanishing imperfection. 
But sin in origin and essence is lawlessness, a violation of the law. It is rebellion and hostility against God, the negation of his justice, his authority, and the negation even of his existence. Wow. Sin is very personal and it's very serious. And because it is personal and because it is against God's righteousness, turn with me back to Romans chapter 1. Because God is righteous, it's because sin is personal, God is angry. God is angry. In fact, Paul says, verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed. In chapter 2, verse 5, just look with me at how prominent this is. Because of, Paul says, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, he's talking to unbelievers, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath that's in the future and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God, verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. That's righteousness. That's justice. Psalm 7, verse 11 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Indignation every day. God is wrathful, full of wrath against those who disobey his law. You say, well, what about John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That is all praise. God is that true. That is true. And John 3.36 in the same chapter is true. Where we are told that the man or woman who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Present, active, abiding. Abiding. You see, the biblical gospel, the one gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel once for all delivered to the saints, has a very specific context and concern. And you miss this, and you don't tell men and women about this. You miss the gospel, and you lie to them about the gospel. This is not coincidental. This is not a matter of preference, as though some pastors have the liberty to be more, you know, hellfire and brimstone, more serious, and some pastors get to be a little nicer. It is not an option. It is not my gospel. It is not your gospel. It is God's gospel. And it has a very specific context and a very specific, specific concern. And it's this. Men and women who are sinners, which is all of us, need to be saved. Saved. Saved from the judgment and the condemnation their sin justly deserves. Verse 
That is the context of the gospel, the good news. That is the situation that the good news was given by God to address. We're not telling them. We're we're joining people and looking back at Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and we're, we're shaking our heads and just saying, Oh, that's so medieval. In fact, that's what N.T. Wright, again, a, a modern, please don't read anything he's written, and you'll, you'll get so bored, and I don't know how people read him. He, he is, he's a, he's a very nice, kind British man. And he's publishing Pablum, and he's enamored with himself, I read enough recently that, I'm sorry, I just had to get that out. It's not personal, but what he says, he characterizes anyone who talks about the gospel in terms of saving from the anger of God. This is what he does again and again. Scott McKnight does it and some of these other academics. They characterize anybody who says that the gospel is about saving sinners from the anger of God and the wrath of God. They say uh, that, is, that goes back to medieval ages when, when people didn't understand. And, and we're so thankful that men like um, N.T. Wright have come along and, and help us understand for the first time the true context of the gospel. First of all, he mischaracterizes. We have not, I have not said this morning that God is a vindictive God. I have not said that God is like the gods of other nations. He's not, he's not um, whimsical in his anger. He is just and righteous. We know that the gods of the Greeks and the pagan gods, you didn't know on a given day whether they liked you or approved of you or whether they were angry. And sometimes they, 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 they believed that these false gods would just lash out. That's not God. God is steady. God is constant. God's anger and wrath, listen, is actually a manifestation, a revelation of his righteousness and of his goodness Hebrews 10 31 tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God we're not telling them that we're lying to men and women by the hundreds and by the thousands we're not telling them the truth Jonathan Edwards was right. Apart from Christ, you are in the hands of an angry God. Oh, does he love you? Yes, he does, which is why he has been patient and why he has been forbearing and why God allows things to continue to go on. But God's love and God's anger are not opposed. They are both representations of his perfection of who he is. God, Ezekiel 33, 11 tells us, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not a sadistic, cruel God. He's kind. He is reasonable. He is gracious. He is loving. All of these. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, says God to sinners. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die? 
God longs for sinners to be saved from judgment and condemnation. But we should not take from this that God is somehow conflicted within. This is how I think we're we're thinking these days. We're thinking and presenting the gospel as though God was grumpy and angry in the Old Testament and the good news is he's changed and he's toned down his holiness and, you know, he's a little more malleable and, and so the good news is now that, you know, he's, you can, you know, trust or be associated with Jesus somehow and you're good. That is heresy. Heresy. Because God is one and he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has never changed. He has never been more loving. He has never been more glorious or good or kind. This will blow some of your minds, but the anger and the wrath of God is an anger and a wrath that God knows in his eternal existence. Why? Because he is in all places at all times. Anger and and wrath is nothing less than God's holy response to all disobedience and all that is not righteous. It is, it is a fascinating passage at the end of Isaiah. We don't have turn to, time to turn there. But at the close of the book of Isaiah, which is, which is like Romans in the Old Testament, is a, is a beacon of gospel hope in the Old Testament and, and offers up the hope of Christ and promises a glorious future. But Isaiah closes with God's people going and witnessing the corpses of the wicked whose smoke goes up day after day, whose fire is not quenched and the worm does not devour. In other words, God is actually praised for his righteous judgment and ultimately a place called hell. We're embarrassed about it He's not. He's not. Because everything he does is is good and righteous because he is not parts. He is not divided. He is not conflicted. When we say that God is love, and he is, and all he is, and we're going to close by we're going to see how loving he is, But when we say God is love, we need to remember that we're talking about this God is love. The righteous God. The righteous one. That's the God who is loving. And if he were not angry and wrathful towards sinners and the unrighteous, it would be revealed that God is not good. If God wasn't angry towards sin and disobedience, if God was not wrathful against all ungodliness, the truth is he would not be good, he would not be loving, he would not be just, he would not be true, he would not be glorious, but he is. In fact, you could rightly say that God's love, goodness, mercy, kindness, graciousness, faithfulness, loveliness is the reason for his anger and wrath. He loves his glory. 
He loves what is true. He loves what is gracious. He loves what is kind. He loves what is gentle. And that is all that he is and all that his son is. And men and women made in his image in our sin, what do we do? We deny God. We deny his righteousness. We call it good and we say, you have no right. You are not God. You are not true. You are a liar. You are not glorious. You're lying to us. Do you see how despicable it is? God's love is a jealous love, pure and jealous for the truth. He will not deny the truth, and the truth is that God is right and worthy of all glory and honor and obedience. And therefore, each man and woman will receive the justice due him or her for their sin. That's what Paul says. In Romans, he says, God will render to each one, Romans 2, 6, according to his deeds. He says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Tribulation and distress. Again, verse 8, to those who are selfishly ambitious, that's sin, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. This is bad news. This is really bad news. And it's the truth. It's reality. It's the way things are. God is righteous, and we are not. But fewer and fewer men and women attending evangelical churches are hearing this. And you can see why. If you live in a culture in which personal feelings are the ultimate factor in your mind determining what is true, telling men and women that God is God, that God is righteous, that you've sinned against this God, and that your sin, because it is against God who is of infinite value and glory, means that you are worthy of a judgment that you cannot pay even in eternity in hell. Men and women, that doesn't feel too good. And so they deny it, relegate it to something that those Puritans preached 100 years ago. Not only do people in our culture deny this about God, but pastors and preachers have jettisoned this truth. Rarely, I fear, I don't know, but I think rarely do we hear in our evangelical churches. And what is evangelical? Evangelical means gospel. So supposedly these are gospel churches. And pastors and preachers have jettisoned this truth because it seems like telling men and women about the righteousness of God and his wrath and his anger because of his righteousness, it seems to these pastors that that would be the worst possible approach if you hope to gain a hearing and want to add people to your church. And you can understand that. It makes sense, but it doesn't mean it's right. 
And then popular scholars like N.T. Wright tell us that we've got the gospel all wrong. The concern about an angry God is perfectly medieval. And the purpose, after all, and this is another area that really irks me, is Wright and McKnight. They, they minimize and virtually ridicule the gospel as a message of salvation from judgment for sinners. Rather, salvation is about the renewal of the cosmos of creation. Oh, and I teach, because of Romans 8, one day the renewal of creation and the cosmos. That is, that is one of the glorious benefits, attainments of Christ. And God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be a renewal. And we teach that and we preach that. But that is not the heart of the gospel. So you have, this, you have these three forces. You have a cultural dominant view of, of reality and truth that mitigates against the idea that there's actually another being called God who is the determiner of what is true and what is right. You have a decades of a pattern of toning down, hiding, dismissing, being ashamed of the righteousness of God, the anger of God, the judgment of God, and then you bring along now a certain seemingly respectable academic twist, and you have a perfect storm for there to be a large-scale departure from the gospel right under our noses, and I'm talking about right now, The reality is that if you were to survey generally our preaching of the gospel in evangelical churches today, it seems we have come to the conclusion that we are ashamed of the anger and the righteousness of God. I mean, you hide something in the family. Um, Some of you families, when you have people over, you like to show people the whole house. They tend to do that down south. Our family, Chris and I, we 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 tend to say, "Yeah, you you could just stay downstairs." Why? Well, maybe I don't always put my clothes away. I'm working on it still. But you know, we we generally kind of keep tucked away the things that we don't want to be public. We don't want to be prominent. We don't want to be revealed. And that's okay in the context of a home. But when the professing church concludes that the righteousness of God, the rightness of God, is something to be tucked away, hidden, not really mentioned, we have a problem. We're ashamed of God. Not just his righteousness, it means we're ashamed of God, which means that we're telling men and women about a God that actually doesn't exist. We're telling them about the love of God and the various attributes about God, but God is all that he is, and gloriously so. Well, this is bad news. And we only have a few minutes left. What are we to do? 
I've taken all this time to help you see the true biblical context of the gospel. The gospel addresses this bad news that we need to be saved. And when you tell men and women the truth, when you tell men and women the truth about the righteousness of God and about the nature of our sin and the reality of, our, of God's wrath upon us now and impending judgment, the true gospel becomes brilliantly clear. Because the good news, the gospel, is that God has provided salvation for sinners from the just condemnation of their sin. This is the good news. God has provided for the salvation of sinners from the just condemnation of their sin. And he has done this, of course, not by changing, for he is perfect. Not by flexing, not by evolving, not by conceding, not by caving, not by compromising. No, God is altogether right and righteous. So here's the question that Paul addresses in Romans. How can God who is righteous possibly maintain his righteousness and justice and at the same time somehow save sinners who are guilty and actually declare them to be righteous in his sight? How can he do this? And the answer is, he does this by causing wonderfully, mysteriously, gloriously, righteously, powerfully, your sins and mine and all who will believe, all your disobedience to be counted as being dealt with in the death, the crucifixion, and the sufferings of Christ. Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. The just wrath, as we sang about, that we deserve was poured out on Christ on the cross. God has, on the cross, placarded His righteousness. He hasn't hid it away. He has declared it. Here is what your sins deserve. Here is my righteousness. Here is the the horror and the violence and the ignominy and the shame of your sin against me. And Christ receives it. The wrath of God, the just wrath of God that you and I deserve in the full extent, not as an example, not as a kind of offering and sacrifice, but in a penal, penalty-bearing, substitutionary, wrath-bearing atonement. He takes the wages of our sin, which is death, the penalty, which is wrath, so that the justice of God is fulfilled in Christ. This is what Romans 3 says. That Christ, verse 25, was displayed by God as a propitiation in his blood. Verse 26, so that God, 
end of verse 26, would be just, righteous, and the justifier or the righteous fire. He makes you righteous of those who have faith in Jesus. God demonstrated and magnified his righteousness, providing his justice due sinners was measured out in full upon his sinless son. Jesus willingly received and bore the just penalty for our sins on the cross so that all sinners confessing their unrighteousness who cry out to God for forgiveness and believe in Jesus Christ and his sin-bearing death might be saved, saved from the just anger, wrath, and condemnation of God. And not merely forgiven, it doesn't even stop there, this good news, this salvation. Not only do you have your judgment accounted for in Christ, but God then not only provides for your, your violation of his righteousness, God imputes or credits to you who believe in Jesus the righteous obedience and life of Jesus so that when God calls you and declares you to be righteous, it is not a figment of the imagination, it's not a sleight of hand, but your sins have been dealt with in Christ on the cross, and Christ, who is of infinite value as the sinless man, he, as you are joined by faith in Christ, in Christ you are truly righteous before God. We're almost done. Paul put it most succinctly, 2 Corinthians 5. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The gospel doesn't hide the righteousness of God. The gospel exalts God and his righteousness. This is the gospel of God. There is no other. There is no other. And if you have not been hearing about this righteousness of God and the just judgment of sins, if you have not been hearing about warning you to be saved from the wrath to come, whatever you're hearing about God, love, restoration, Jesus, cross, all of that, you can hear all of those terms. You are not hearing the gospel. You've been sold a raw deal. And it's Satan who's behind that ultimately. We are not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel of God. By God's grace, we are not ashamed of the righteousness of God. But we trust with trembling in Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Let's pray. Oh God, what a gospel, what a good news. We love you, oh God, for all that you are, including your righteousness, even though it causes us to tremble. We want to turn from the lies of the devil and of this world and in contrition and humility repent and confess that you, O God, are righteous in all your ways and most of all in how you save us from our sin. I pray, O God, if there's anyone here this morning who has not confessed their unrighteousness and trusted in Jesus, asking you to forgive, trusting in Christ's death, I pray that this day will be a day of good news, of salvation. In Jesus, your name, amen.